13 through uh, 25 is where we want to uh, go today. I'll give you a quick summation of these verses. Basically, Paul reminds the people of his day that the promise of the covenant, basically the promise that God will justify the ungodly, uh, is received not by law. Now, last week we saw he made a point to, to push the fact that that promise is not received by circumcision. This week he, he narrows in on the law as a whole and lets them know that we don't receive that promise by the law but it's by faith and then in the last three verses he tells you and i that these very verses are written for us so hear the word of god this morning <clears throat> for the promise to abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs faith is null and the promise is void for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. We all pray with me. Father God, we come to you this morning asking for your mercy, your grace, your kindness upon all of us as we sit under your word. As the word is proclaimed, it's preached, may you take it and implant it in our souls and may it bear fruit, the fruit of faith. Many of us walk in needing help, needing hope to look forward to what's before us and God you provide that in your word and we ask that you would make it clear to us by faith this morning we pray for pastor Greg now may we preach your word with boldness with holy unction and with great delight and joy that you've given him from Christ all right so if the promise is received by faith it's pretty important that we understand what faith is right if this is the way we receive all of god's blessings and the covenant and the promise that he's made us in christ if it's by faith what is faith and uh, the title of our sermon is very simple faith is taking god at his word that's basically what faith is it's taking god at his word and believing him so look at verse 13 as paul begins to, to tell us about this this morning verse 13 paul says for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. 
did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And I know we're thinking, wow, this is, we, we thought that, that we were kind of hearing Paul repeat the theme of wrath and sin for a long time, right? The first three chapters. Well, now we realize chapters, the end of three and four and five and six, is going to be this repetition of the grace of God, which is good. But we need to hear this. The reason Paul hammers this, he's hammering this idea that salvation, that justification is by faith alone, not by works. He has to repeat it over and over. Why? Because we have a hard time hearing it as human beings. We always, we, we default back to a works-based mentality. And we think we have something to do with our salvation. And we think we have to contribute somehow by keeping a, a law or doing good work. So he has to remind us over and over of the blessed truth that the promise of God is received by faith. Now look at this interesting spot though here. It says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world comes through faith. Now, what about this promise to be heir of the world? If we look back at the actual promise of at least geography, the, the promised lands that God, that God gave to Abraham and his people, there were specific boundaries. There were geographical limitations and boundaries to that. But this said that he and his offspring are heir of the whole world. Now, now, what is that talking about? Why is it saying that? Well, first, I think it's symbolic language, basically letting us know that the offspring of Abraham is going to be multitudes upon multitudes that you really can't count. And, and if we go back to Genesis 15, 5, I, I think we, we see when God originally made this promise, he was using that as an object lesson, the idea of innumerable people. Look at verse 5. And he, God, brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God on this promise, and God counted it as righteousness to him. So that's where we see that original promise. But I think it's really interesting when you think about the idea. I'm going to take just a moment here. Now, now, you obviously can't number the stars, but God used the stars for a reason, right? He said these words to Abraham, so I think it's fun for us to think about how many stars are in heaven. So I uh, read an article in SciTech Daily that was uh, given to me by Ian this week. Very interesting stuff. I mean, when you think about it, we're in the Milky Way. That's the galaxy that we're in. The universe, massive, is made up of galaxies, and our galaxy is the Milky Way galaxy. And in our galaxy alone, there are 100 billion stars. That's a lot. But then you have to realize that now they estimate there are approximately 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. Huh? Yeah. This is, this is, this is uh, amazingly big. So then how many stars would be in the entire universe? Our little galaxy, the Milky Way, has over uh, 100 billion stars. So again, it's not exact here, but it's estimated. Therefore, if you take that and, and multiply that times 2 trillion, you've got about 200 sextillion stars. That's like uh, 200 billion trillion. I mean, this is like stuff you hear kids say, right? And they're just trying to exaggerate, right? Like, I, 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 I'm going to give you 200 billion trillion. What? But this is real numbers here. This is what God is telling Abraham. I'm going to, your, your seed is, is just unfathomable. And that's what God is using. That's why he's using the, the galaxies that he created, the universe that he created, 
It's, it's just a sim- symbol here to show that the, the offspring of Abraham is just innumerable. More than we can count is the idea there. So that's one reason he used that word there, world, the expanse of his inheritance. But also I think it is a messianic reason that he used that word. The, the messianic statement, right, uh, of the fact that Jesus is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. So when you read that verse with that in mind, uh, back, back in Romans 4.13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. So as we look at that messianic statement, Jesus, of course, is the Messiah that will rule the world, and we, being joint heirs with him, will rule and reign with him. And this, this again, folks, this is, this is our joy as Christians. We, this is the stuff we need to understand the Bible is promising us. Part of the promise that God has given us is, 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 is an eternal promise. It's not some silly promise made for our life to be, to be better here in this nasty now and now, in this world that we live in, uh, oh, you know, your best life now. No, God's promise to us is, yes, he is with us now and forevermore. And there are things that he has prepared. There's an inheritance stored up for us that we can't even fathom or imagine. So listen, you want to beat depression, you want to beat the the doldrums, you want to beat this anxiety that we face because we're so much looking to the here and now and we're so much looking at ourselves. Look to God, his promises, and the future that he has for us. This is why I, I tell you the church today is so inward focused. It's all about us, how we feel, how we can feel better about ourselves now, how we can have a good time now. Folks, we've got to realize that we've already overcome in ways we can't imagine and everything is ours. This is the promise that we receive by faith. Christ, our Messiah, will rule. Revelation eleven fifteen. We just covered this last Wednesday. You missed it. Sorry if you weren't here. Revelation 15 Uh, Verse 15 of chapter 11. Look at this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. Folks, that's it. The seventh angel, the final judgment comes to the world. Everything's over. Time as we know it is finished. And eternity has come. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? This verse is the inspiration of George Frederick Handel as he wrote his Messiah. It's glorious praise to the Lamb of God, the the, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. It sounded familiar, did it not? The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, 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 amen. Right? I mean, this is, this, this is the glorious song that Christians sing, right? This is our, our truth that he will reign forever and ever. I think the power in the word of God, folks, we, we belittle it. We, we don't trust it. Just sing the truth of God's word. Do you know the power that had on, on King George II? When King George II heard Handel's Messiah and it got to the hallelujah chorus, he sprang to, that's what that is, by the way, Revelation eleven fifteen. When he heard those words, King George 
sprang to his feet in honor of the greater sovereign that was in his presence. He gave tribute and glory to the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who will one day rule all of the universe and is the creator and maker of the universe. So again, this is, this is what Paul is saying here in these first ver- this first verse, verse 13 that we looked at. This was the promise that Abraham believed. Abraham saw all of that. Abraham believed that, that God through his seed would bring about a Messiah who will ultimately rule the kingdoms, the kingdom of the world will be his. And then again, don't forget, Romans 8, 17 says that we are joint heirs with Christ. If we're in Christ, if we are a believer, by faith, we've received the promise of God and we are joint heirs with Christ. <laughs> and as Revelation 22, 5 says, we therefore will reign with him forever and ever as well. You believe it? Take God at his word, folks. That's faith. That's what he's calling us to have, faith in him, not us. Faith in what pleased him. It pleased him to call a multitude of people, so many you can't number them. Calling them to enter his kingdom. How? By faith in his promise. And all who do so will reign with the Messiah forever and ever. That's the promise. Now look at what he goes on to say here as he builds on this now. Paul explains this beginning again now in verse 14 as he talks about the incompatibility here of law and grace. He says, for if it, the promise, if the promise is the, uh, if it is for the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. If, If it's somehow by works or keeping the law, then it's not promise that's not that's that that's you're receiving that promise because you earned it that's not faith so you can't have them together you can't have the law keeping and faith working together there they're they're basically mutually incompatible think of the language used in that in that verse and think of the language of law versus the language of promise that's really what we're seeing in these verses paul's trying to make a point god has used the language of promise we as humans keep reverting back to the language of law. But look at this. Think about the language of, of uh, uh, well, law. What does law say? The la- law language says this. You shall. You shall, and it demands our obedience. That's law language. You shall. Sounds like the Ten Commandments. What do you know? That's the law. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt do this. You must obey these things. That's law language. You shall. But promise language is what God uses here. And promise language is, I will. Not you shall. I will. And that demands our faith. So law language demands our obedience. Promise language demands our faith. We believe. God, you said that you would forgive me of all my sins. You you say that that you will give me a purpose greater than I've ever known, and that is to glorify you. You said that I'll be a joint heir with your son, and you say that I will rule and reign forever, and that there's an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for me. You said all that. You will do all that. I believe. I believe 
I take you at your word. I'll take you at your word. So if I take him at his word that he's going to do all that, and then I start working to make it happen, am I really taking him at his word? Or am I helping him out because I don't really trust him all the way? You see the point Paul's making here? The law keeping has to go when we rest by faith in the promise of God. In order, let me clarify, for justification. That's the idea. The promise of justification is not fulfilled by the law. It is given and received to us. It's given by God, by grace, and received by us, by faith. And when we do receive that, there will be law-keeping, but it has nothing to do with receiving the promise, other than the fact that because we've received the promise, we want to obey God. Uh, John Stott puts it this way. What God said to Abraham was not, obey this law and I will bless you, but I will bless you. Believe my promise. So again, I hope we understand that point. We have to hear it over and over in our minds. Our human natures have to be just immersed in this. And only the Holy Spirit, at the end of the day, can give us the ability to say, I take you at your word, God. I trust you. I, I, I believe. But this is what God is saying. I will bless you. I will do it. I've done it all in Christ. Believe me. Believe me. Now, what, what does the law do then? What, what, what purpose does the law play here? Verse 15, look what Paul says. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. There was a Russian novelist, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and he said these famous words, if there is no God, all things are permissible. That's what Paul's saying here. The law of God the Ten Commandments and the laws, the moral laws of God, they represent the very righteousness of God. And, and, and people in our society, we, we don't like that. As sinners by nature, we don't like an absolute law telling us that we're wrong about something or, or that something is actually sin or a transgression. But that's what the law does. That's, that's what Paul is saying there. If there were no law, you wouldn't know you're sinning. There's still sin without the law, but what does, what does the law do? The law accentuates, it emphasizes, it highlights, it brings attention to sin and the transgression of that sin. That's what the law does. And as Paul said later, that that law actually, because of our sinful nature, the way we react to most laws is it makes us want to sin even more. That's uh, human nature. He said, no, that's not true. We're not that bad. Yeah, yeah. What about this little experiment? I've, I've used this before, but it was very interesting. In, in uh, New York City, in Central Park, they did an experiment where they painted a bench, right? And they, 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 they just painted it, right? Fresh paint. And they walked away. They didn't put a sign or anything on it. They waited about 20 minutes. Nobody sat on the bench. Nobody touched the bench. Nothing. Well, they repainted the bench. And this time they put a big sign Wet paint, do not touch. <laughs> Within five minutes, 12 people touched the bench. There's something about us, folks. Our rebellious nature, a law, not only condemns us, but it also revives our sin within us. And we have this rebellious nature that says, oh, yeah? <laughs> All right? So this is what, what the law does. It doesn't save us by any means, folks. It condemns us and highlights our very nature and our very sin. 
Romans 7, 7, Paul says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. So the law itself is not sin. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So again, the, the idea is that this, this law, this perfect morality of God is given to a society in order for us to be confronted with the fact that what we're doing, these actions, these rebellious things that we call sin, is actually even more than that. It is transgression against a holy God. And we don't like that. That's why society, many in our society, they don't want to be reminded of God's laws. They don't want to be reminded of God's laws by Christians who read the Word of God, who simply state the Word of God, who bring up the morality of God. This is why in our day women don't want you uh, to have a law. We don't want a law that would say abortion is illegal. Because that would indicate that it's murder or that there's something wrong with it. So the language has to be changed, right? I was watching a clip this week from The View, um, Whoopi Goldberg and the girls. Uh, and Joy Barner, had, 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 they had Anne, Anne Hathaway was on, and uh, Joy Barner brought up this point of, hey, Anne, we see that you're very much pro-choice, and you're really fighting for abortion, and you're really broken when Roe v. Wade was overturned, and, and, and she said, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and in this conversation, here's the sentence that she said that we have to kind of dissect. She said, this is not a moral conversation. So abortion is not a moral conversation. This is a practical conversation about women's rights. And by the way, human rights, because women's rights are human rights. There's a sleight of hand that has to happen in our flesh when we're confronted by the law of God. We don't want to be convicted, so we have to change the language. So now what, what we have here, we can't have the word moral because that suggests right or wrong. So it can't be a moral discussion. Because that would entail rightness or wrongness. We, we can't have the word abortion because that suggests stopping the natural development of a human life. Abort means to cut off or stop something that's already in process. So we must substitute some words. We must substitute the word practical for moral and health care or human rights for the word abortion. Man, I hope we see this. Now, before we think, oh, well, yeah, that's terrible out there. Let's think about all of us. What about the guy who comes home from work? He's tired, man. He's had a long day and goes off into his man cave there and turns on his computer and starts to browse places that shouldn't be browsing, looking at things. But, you know, hey, he doesn't use the word that the Bible uses or that the, the law says. He doesn't use the word lust or adultery of the heart. He uses words like, I just need to relax. I just need a break, right? I need some alone time. I, I, I need to unwind. That's all. That's all I'm doing. It's okay. So folks, all of us must come face to face with the law of God and understand, folks, that sin is transgression. Whatever we call it, it's still a breaking of God's perfect moral law. The law rightly labels what we call self-indulgence and fun as what it actually is. Transgression against the holy God of the universe. Transgression. 
That's right. That's such an important word. To break. To break the law of God. And notice the important word grouping that we see. Romans 4.15. Law, transgression, wrath. It's... I mean, when you think about these things, we break the law of God, transgress the law of God. What does it bring? It brings wrath. It brings death. And again, we as, we as humans, that, those are the scariest things to us, right? Now, let, let's, let's look at this. When, when you think about law turning in, what does law do again? It turns sin into transgression, and transgression evokes the wrath of God and provokes that wrath. So that's, that's what Paul is trying to step here first and foremost. The promise does not come by the law because the law can't save us. The law simply condemns us. The law simply shows us where we're sinful. Okay, having established all that, we need some good news. And verse 16 brings us the good news. Look at it, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares faith, the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So word groupings again here are very important. We go from the idea of sin, transgression, and wrath to these words, faith and grace. Very simple. Faith evokes God's grace. Sin evokes God's wrath. And so notice this. As we see these verses, what a glorious truth when you think about the demanding weight of the law on us that means we would have to keep it perfectly to actually honor God and to receive this promise of life and eternity. Well, if we're going to receive that by works of the law, then we have to keep them all perfectly. We've already seen where we can't do that in the heart, in our minds, by our actions. And so that's why it depends on faith. What a glorious breath of fresh air. What a glorious weight is lifted from us. It's by faith that it may rest on grace. It doesn't rest on your merit. It rests on grace. That's glorious. The summary then of, of the verses we've read thus far, verses 13 through 16, look at this. Here's a quick summary. God's law makes demands which we transgress. That's the first point, right? God's law shows the demands of his perfection which we transgress. And so we incur wrath. But God's grace makes promises, which we believe, and so receive the blessings of God. We just take God at his word. We just take God at his word. He did all the work for us in Christ, knowing we could never measure up, knowing we could never keep that law. He sent his son to do so in our place. He kept the law for us. He took the wrath of God for us. Do you take God at his word? He said, whoever believes on the son has everlasting life. Can you take God at his word? That's faith. That's the faith we're calling for here. Now let's look at the reasonableness of that faith. All right. Look at this. You may say, man, that's hard to believe all this stuff. Nope. Very reasonable faith. It is reasonable. Look at this. Verses 17 through 21. 
in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. What was he told by God? So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So there's... that. I know when I said re the reasonableness of faith, people probably say, well, that's crazy because faith and reason are on two different spectrums, right? We, we, we normally categorize faith as almost superstition, just to believe something, take a blind leap of faith, right? And reason is based on fact, right? So faith is like a guess in the wind. It's kind of a hope-so thing. And reason, that's logical. That's based on fact, right? But I, I'm, I'm going to submit to you that faith and reason do work together. They're not mutually incompatible. I mean, the, the, the thing about faith, it does look beyond reason, yes, but, but its foundation is reason. Then it sees way more than just reason. It sees what can't be seen. I like what R.C. Sproul says about this. He says, sometimes people think that saving faith is a leap in the dark. People are told, just close your eyes, take a deep breath, make a leap of faith, jump into the darkness, and pray that Jesus will be there to catch you. That's how a lot of people view Christians. That's how a lot of people view this thing of faith, that we've checked our brain at the door, and we're just believing whatever, taking a blind leap of faith with no facts whatsoever to place our faith in. Kind of like the guy that was running on a mountain trail and he slipped as he went around the edge and he was hung, hang, hung on to the, the ledge, man. He's hanging on to the ledge. It's nighttime. He was running at night. That was silly. But here he is now hanging on to the ledge and he looks down at this ravine, total darkness. And in desperation, he calls out, is anybody there? Help, is anybody there? And he finally hears a voice from the darkness say, let go, trust me, I'll catch you. He waits a second and then he hollers out, is anybody else there? <laughs> but that, that's kind of how we are, right? That people think that that's what we're saying about, like a blind leap of faith, like we have no idea where we're going if we let go and we just hope Jesus catches us somehow. That's not it. Jesus does not call us to jump into the darkness he calls us to, to jump out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Light is illumination. Second Peter, or 1 Peter 2, 9, that's, that's what the apostle says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Illumination, truth. What did Jesus say? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So the facts are, folks, that we put our faith 
not blindly. It's not just blind faith. We have an object of our faith. There's a reason for our faith. John Stott says, faith is believing or trusting a person and its reasonableness depends on the reliability of the person being trusted. It is always reasonable to trust the trustworthy. And there is nobody more trustworthy than God. It's reasonable to trust. Now, there's, there's more here. Abraham had faith in God's promise because he had faith in God's power. Abraham knew historically that God demonstrated his power, his authority, and his sovereignty. And, and Romans 17 gives us this, this evidence, this place where we place our faith. Verse 17, it said, in the presence of the God. This is where Abraham believed. He believed in the presence of God. He had belief in the promise. And as he was standing there in the presence of God and whom he believed, who, this God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So this verse reveals the two evidence, evidences of God's power that Abraham believed in. Look at, look at this. First of all, it said that he gives life. He gives life to the dead. Abraham believed in the resurrection power of God. He understood that he only he gives life. And he believed in the creation power of God. He brings into existence things that are not. He creates. Do we believe that? Let me ask you this. Here, let's take a quick test here. So, Creation tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We believe, there's a word in Latin for this, ex nihilo, out of nothing. There was nothing, and then there was something, right? Because God said, he spoke it into being. That's the creative power. So, would we believe that? Can we believe that? Is there any evidence that there's a God who created planets and stars and universes? Oh, yeah, there is. Look out the window. There's some evidence that this Bible that we read is reasonable to trust because what it has said has happened. There's a world. So the, the, the burden of proof that there's no God is on the one who then has to deny all the physical evidence and the claims that that God has made. What about this? The Bible also tells us that man is sinful, that man is depraved, that, that man is selfish, that man is covetous, that, that, that he is lustful, that he's greedy. Well, that can't be true. I don't believe that. Are you kidding Evidence is all around us that the Bible's right about that. The Bible talks about that there'll be wars and rumors of wars and famine and pestilence and corrupt governments. Surely there's no evidence for that. No, it's all around us. The point Paul's making and the point that Abraham understood is there is multiple evidences for me to trust the God who makes a promise to me because he's kept every other promise he's ever made. That's what Paul meant in 
Romans 1.20 is he looked to this creation power of God as being a reasonable foundation for me to take him at his word. Romans 1.20, Paul said, for, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How? In the things that have been made. And Paul goes on to say, so you're without excuse. You're without excuse. Those two things deal with man's greatest fears, death and nothingness, right? That's, those are the two things that, that Abraham said God answers. Death and nothingness. We hate, we hate as existential 21st century humans to think about something that we can't control and, and the idea of just nothingness. We can't wrap our heads around that. And, and death, we don't like it. What did Woody Allen say? I'm not afraid to die. It's just I don't want to be there when it happens. But I mean, we as humans, we fear these things because we have no control over these things. And what Abraham is saying is, but we can trust in the God who does have control over those things. He's demonstrated we're here, we're in existence, and he did that. We didn't do that. Abraham believed in the resurrection power of God. You say, did he really, did he really understand that? I, yes. You know what? We have the whole word of God as Christians here. Abraham, it's amazing that he had that faith back there in the Old Testament, right? He's believing God's promises. He's taking God at his word. He sees the power that he saw of God, and he's trusting him, therefore, on everything else God promises. But he believed in the resurrection power of God, that God makes life where there is no life. Because in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, in the great hall of faith, where we see Abraham listed among all of those who had great faith, and look what it says. Remember, after God made this promise to Abraham and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you and all the nations of the world will be blessed and through all of your seed, all of your offspring will come Jesus, the Messiah. Ultimately, he will come from your seed. That promise was made. You will have a son. He, and, he, and, he, and he had a son, Isaac. This was the promised seed of Abraham that would, that would his, from his prodigy would come multitudes. But then God told him one day, hey, I want you to take your son up to the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham did. He took his son, went up to the mountain, prepared the altar, tied his son up, had the wood ready, had the knife up in the air, and God said, whoa. Now, wait a minute. What in the world? This is, this is the promise. Abraham, what are you doing? Well, Abraham's just exercising more faith because he believed that had he plunged that knife through his son's heart, God would have resurrected him. You said that's preposterous. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And look why. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham believed the resurrection power of God. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He told this to Mary. And Lazarus is about to be raised. Jesus is going to raise him from the dead to show his power. But he tells Mary before he does, he says, Mary, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then he said these words. Do you believe this? 
Do you believe this, Mary? Do you take God at his word? And that's what Paul's saying. That's, that's, that, that's what these verses are about. It's God who makes the promise to us. It's God who redeems us through his son. It's God who paid the price. It's God who crushed his own son. It's God who raised him from the dead in our place. And it's God who tells all of us if we will repent of our sins and believe the promise that whoever believes on Christ shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then he brings it right home in verses 22 and 25 for us today. 20, verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's the message, folks. Simple as it is, offensive as it is, foolish as it is to many, this is the message we're called to proclaim. And more importantly, this is the message we're called to believe. Do you take God at his word this morning? Do you take God at his word this morning? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the evidence that you've given us through your word a book in our world that has more manuscriptic evidence historically to prove its authenticity than any other ancient literature. And yet, we struggle to believe. We want more evidence. We want more academic proof. When there is no greater historical book proven than your word. But Father, this is why we need your Holy Spirit. May your Holy Spirit break our hearts today and make this message alive. May you give the ability for us to take you at your word. Give us that faith that we may glorify you. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.